welcome to Script Bits, a show for writers, film buffs, and everyone in between. Each episode, we take a closer look at one section of a great screenplay and find out what it can teach us about storytelling. This week, we'll investigate an iconic scene from the haunting script, Alien. I'm Bruff Hansen, and this is Script Bits. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Script Bits. Today, we are going to be examining a scene from the screenplay for Alien. The structure of the show is as follows. First, I'm going to give a brief introduction to the movie. Then I'm going to read one short section of the screenplay out loud, e.g. one script bit or beat. And finally, we'll talk about some of the section's attributes and see if we can discover what it has to teach us. First, some background. If you aren't familiar with Alien, it was a famous sci-fi slash horror movie. It was released in 1979, starred Sigourney Weaver, and it was directed by Ridley Scott. It is about a crew on a cargo spaceship in the distant future who respond to a distress signal on a planet. When they go to investigate, they discover a mysterious life form that impregnates a crew member's body, birthing a monster that then goes about trying to systematically annihilate everyone on the ship. Fun for the whole family. The original screenplay was by Dan O'Bannon, based on a story he co-created with Ronald Shusett. But we're going to be looking instead at the rewrite by Walter Hill and David Geiler, which is closer to the final film. We'll be starting on page 29 at the bottom, beginning with the section Interior Derelict Cargo Hold. At this point, the crew has received what they believe to be a distress signal from a passing planet and have sent three members down to the planet in a shuttle to investigate, Lambert, Dallas, and Kane. They find an enormous and seemingly abandoned alien ship and go inside. When the beat begins, Lambert and Dallas are in a cargo hold in the ship, and their crewmate, Kane, is being lowered by wire into another chamber below. All right, let's begin. Interior. Derelict cargo hold. Kane resumes his downward climb. Suddenly, his feet lose their purchase as the walls of the shaft disappear. The tunnel has reached its end. Below him is dark, cavernous space. Deep breaths due to his violent exertion. Dallas, voiceover. See anything? Kane, no. Cave or something below me. Feels like the goddamn tropics in here. He consults his instruments. Helmet instrumentation strobing softly in the darkness. Kane, high nitrogen content, no oxygen. Still puffing, he releases his purchase on the stone walls, begins to lower himself on power. Now Kane is dangling free in darkness, spinning slowly on the wire as the chest unit unwinds. Then his feet hit bottom. Kane grunts in surprise, almost loses his balance. He flashes his suit lights. The beams reveal that he is in a large hold. Row after row of extrusions stretch from floor to ceiling. Kane, this is weird. Dallas, voiceover. What do you mean? Kane. There's something all over the walls. Kane walks across the chamber, examines the organic protrusions. Interior, chamber, above. Dallas and Lambert. Dallas. How long till sunset? Lambert. Twenty minutes. A look from Lambert. Interior, hold. Kane approaches the center of the room. On the floor are rows of leathery ovoid shapes. He walks around them, shines his light on one. Kane, it's like some kind of storage area. Is anybody there? Do you read me? Dallas, voiceover. 
loud and clear. Cain, the place is full of leathery things. Like the one up above, they seem to be sealed. Dallas, voiceover, can you see what's in them? Cain, I'll give it a look. He tries to open one of them. It won't open. Cain, strange feeling to it. Dallas, voiceover, don't open it. You don't know what's in it. Cain peers closely at the leathery ovoids, turns away. Raised areas begin to appear where he touched it. He moves his light along the rows, turns back to the one he was examining. Something has changed. The opaque surface begins to clear, object becoming visible within. Cain shines his light on the floor at the base of it. He studies it. Cain. Jesus. Dallas. Voiceover. What? Viscera and mandible now visible. The interior surface spongy and irregular. Cain shines the light inside. With shocking violence, a small creature smashes outward, fixes itself to his mask. Sizzling sound. The creature melts through the mask, attaches itself to Cain's face. Cain tears at the thing with his hands, his mouth forced open. He falls backward. <laughs> That is some horrifying screenwriting, is it not? I don't know about you, but that gives me the heebie-jeebies, even just reading it. So I'd like to touch on a few attributes of this section that are worth pointing out. First, we'll look at its use of archetype and how that shapes the moral universe of the movie. Then we'll talk about how it employs understatement and characters' emotional reactions. And finally, we'll touch a bit on its style and tone, which are unlike anything I've ever encountered. The first thing we're going to discuss is this beat's use of archetype. In the context of writing, archetypes are universal, ancient human symbols, figures, characters, settings, etc., that you see over and over again in a variety of different stories, both ancient and modern. The one I want to highlight from this section is the archetype of the underworld. Let's go back to the text. So Cain starts his descent into the underground tunnel. Below him is dark, cavernous space. Deep breaths due to his violent exertion. Dallas, voiceover. See anything? Cain. No. Cave or something below me. Feels like the goddamn tropics in here. So visually, what we're seeing on screen is a human being suspended by a wire over a hot, dark, underground chamber. Now, it doesn't take a degree in literature to see the connection between that locale and a place like the Christian Hell, or the Grecian Hades, or any number of such similar places from mythology around the world. In this sci-fi movie, there's an opportunity to create a setting that is a more on-the-nose representation of the archetype of the underworld. We watch a character literally traveling underground and vicariously experience his descent into the unknown. Even if you've never gone spelunking, this will scare you. Archetypes are, by definition, notions that reside in all of us as a species. Carl Jung, who is the Swiss psychoanalyst who really invented this way of thinking about archetype, said that archetypes are these symbols and ideas that reside in our collective unconscious. 
So even if you consider yourself to be a modern, secular, educated, and relatively sophisticated person like myself, you still have an ape brain that is going to respond to the image of a man dropping below ground and being enveloped in a hot, dark cave. For you writers out there, I really want to drive home this point. You don't want to know your archetypes simply in order to be clever and sneak them into your stories so that people like me will read them and go, oh, that's an archetype. That's not the point. These concepts reside deeply in all of us. They are pre-thought. They're in our DNA. They are from the time we first became human, even before we became human. This is truly primordial stuff. So, if you have the opportunity to bring a universal and foundational archetype to your story, such as an underworld, and you can apply it in a visceral way, you will be able to tap into a deeper layer of our psychology, into our emotions, that will give whatever story you're telling great texture and depth. Now, what if, for whatever reason, you can't actually represent a heavy-handed archetype like the underworld in such an overt way in your story? This brings me to the second point I want to make about the archetype of the underworld, and archetypes generally. And this point is a little more subtle. The underworld is not only a physical location, but it's also a metaphysical location. What do I mean by that? It's not enough to have your character travel to the underworld, although it is a frightening place in its own right. What makes the underworld so powerful is that once you get down there, everything human starts to break down. Our morals, our sense of justice, our social hierarchies, right? We all live in an intersubjective reality of our own making. Almost every interaction you have in your daily life can occur safely because our society is supported by some agreed-upon assumptions. If I stop you in the street and ask you for directions, for example, I can be reasonably assured that you're not going to punch me in the face. However, in the underworld, all bets are off. When Cain goes down there, not only is he encountering an unholy demon-like creature, he's encountering an entire new reality, one that shares none of his preconceptions about right and wrong. Cain comes from a different moral universe than the alien that attacks him. He is literally violated. His face, his very identity is smothered. An appendage is rammed down his throat and he is impregnated against his will. He is no longer in the land of human laws and mores. This violation is not permissible, at least in theory, in a law-abiding society. Then, when he leaves the underworld and returns to the human world, he literally brings an alien life form with him, but he also exposes his society, his crew, to the upside-down sense of morality that has also infected him. He brings the underworld back with him to the ship. And in fact, this theme of morality is stated explicitly in Alien. Later on in the movie, the android on the ship, Ash, has a monologue about the alien, and he talks about how much he admires its purity, its lack of concern for right and wrong, its amorality. He calls it a perfect being. 
I bring up this idea of a moral universe for those of you out there who are writing romantic comedies or some other genre in which you don't have an opportunity to show us more heavy-handed morals. Even for you, it's important to ask, what moral universe do my characters live in and how do the events in their world change that? Every story exists in the context of a particular moral universe, even comedies. And if you don't believe me, Compare the moral universe of, say, Seinfeld to the moral universe of Full House. They are different. Different actions are expected, and transgressions of those expectations lead to completely different consequences. So, speaking generally, you always want to balance the physical and the metaphysical. What's happening in space and time, and what's happening conceptually? What is your underworld? What is the moral universe of your story? How do they change over the course of your script? So that's one big picture way of looking at this scene and talking about what it's doing. The next thing I want to discuss is the notion of what I'm going to call understatement in dialogue, specifically as it relates to a character's emotional reaction to a high-stakes situation. One of the challenges that we all face as storytellers at one time or another entails putting invented characters into high-stakes situations that no one has ever experienced. And it's your job to figure out how to convey real-seeming human reactions. This particular section of this screenplay makes a case for this idea that you don't need histrionics when creating character re reactions to extreme situations. You don't need huge emotional moments. You don't need panic. You don't need tears and yelling and freaking out. You don't need any of that. This script is a great example of how interesting and realistic it can be to write characters who are trying their very best to keep their shit together. I'm going to read a couple of examples. Kane has just descended into the lower chamber, and he reaches the bottom. Kane grunts in surprise almost loses his balance. He flashes his suit lights. The beams reveal that he is in a large hold. Row after row of extrusions stretch from floor to ceiling. Kane, this is weird. <laughs> in this first example, Kane's understatement, this is weird, works because it makes sure that Kane's emotions aren't getting ahead of themselves. Many would be tempted when writing this scene to really gin up his nerves early on. This man lands at the bottom of a dark cave surrounded by strange, egg-like objects. And our first impulse as writers might be to have him say, Oh my god, what am I doing here? Get me out of here, I'm freaking out. But that actually gets ahead of what's going on. So there's a kind of logic to emotional reaction. We can't feel more than we know or suspect that we know. What does Cain know to this point? Almost nothing. He's in a strange and creepy place, and he's surrounded by these strange and creepy objects, but he has no other information. He has no facts beyond what he, and consequently, what we, have seen. His emotional arc in this scene can only go at the pace of new information. This situation isn't horrifying yet. Right now, something is off, but we don't know what it is. 
and this man characterizes the state of affairs as being what they are. Weird. So, we move a little further on in the scene, and in the chamber above Kane, Dallas and Lambert are together, listening to him over their transmitters, and Kane has just told them about the strange objects in the chamber. Before this scene, to get to this alien planet, the shuttle had to travel through a violent storm. So there's some weird stuff going on below ground, and above ground on the planet's surface, things are getting dicey. Interior, chamber, above. Dallas and Lambert. Dallas, how long till sunset? Lambert, 20 minutes. A look from Lambert. A look from Lambert. That's the line. A look from Lambert. This is another situation where understatement can be your friend. When you have adequately shown us what's at stake, your characters don't actually have to also show us by exhibiting big emotions. Their friend is in this dark hole facing God knows what. They're on this alien planet inside an alien spacecraft. There's a storm raging outside. And now we know the sun's about to go down in 20 minutes. Because we know all that, Lambert doesn't need to yell and freak out and tear out her hair. Notice how much more you can communicate about your character's interior lives with subtlety when you've taken the time to show us what's at stake already. Lambert and Dallas, and for that matter, we as the audience, all now understand that if the sun goes down, they are fucked. So all we need from Lambert is a look. I'll give you one last brief example of understatement. Right after that moment between Dallas and Lambert, we go back down into the hold with Kane. Interior, hold. Kane approaches the center of the room. On the floor are rows of leathery, ovoid shapes. He walks around them, shines his light on one. Kane. It's like some kind of storage area. Is anybody there? Do you read me? All right, this moment happens very quickly, so let's go through this one bit at a time. Kane approaches these objects and gets a closer look. Now he has more information about them. He says they're like some kind of storage area. This is truly disconcerting information. Kane is now face to face with these odd leathery eggs that contain something unknown, which could warrant a larger freak out on Kane's part. But does he freak out? Not overtly. It's understated. Instead of saying, get me the hell out of here, Kane simply says into his radio, is anybody there? Do you read me? So whatever feeling is creeping up inside of Kane at this moment, panic or fear or claustrophobia or unease, it doesn't come out in some emotional burst. Remember, he's trying to keep his shit together. And when we see that a character's effort at keeping his shit together is becoming a challenge due to the circumstances, that becomes more interesting still. I want to generalize this idea for all you writers out there. In many different varieties of scenes with different stakes and different reactions involved, if you can keep your character's emotions in check, especially by having them fight against their emotions and attempt to keep them at bay, it actually gives that emotion over to us. This is a general rule that transcends genre. Let's say you're writing a romantic comedy and your lead character finds out that her lover of many years has died in a horrible car crash. 
It's easy to write the scene where she just collapses and weeps. I'm suggesting to you that sometimes that isn't as effective as watching her fight those tears. This is a secret trick that some actors know, and it would behoove you to consider as a writer. If, when our ingenue hears this news about her husband, instead of breaking, she does everything in her power to not cry, we see what she's going through anyway. The pain will not be lost on us, but her containment of that anguish will give the anguish to the audience. Watching tragedy by itself is heartbreaking, but it's so much juicier when we watch people trying not to succumb. And I'd argue that it's more realistic human behavior anyway. Only artists want to fire hose emotions and feelings all over the place. Real people aren't good at coping with strong emotions. They want to do away with negative reactions, even while they're obviously experiencing them. Last but not least, I want to talk about the style of this screenplay, which is simply one of a kind. If you actually open the document and just look at the page, you don't even have to read it, just flip through, you'll notice that every single sentence is its own line break. So every single moment, every single event is just a sentence, one that lives all by itself. It's almost like a haiku. One moment, one event, one reaction, one at a time. Let's go to the text. Cain peers closely at the leathery ovoids, turns away. Raised areas begin to appear where he touched it. He moves his light along the rows, turns back to the one he was examining. Something has changed. The opaque surface begins to clear, object becoming visible within. Cain shines his light on the floor at the base of it. He studies it. Cain. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. What else are you going to say? I could do an entire separate episode on what this style achieves, but I'm just going to make a couple points about tone. This clipped style creates a certain cadence that is both atmospheric and gives us an idea of the pace of the world. Slow, disturbing, haunting, strange. The structure of these events, these single photographs, are little drumbeats. It's like the metronome to this empty world. Boom, 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 boom. And that underlying rhythm will be different for every script. Some screenplays will have a lot of ellipses and dashes and slug lines. New shot, new shot, new shot. The rhythm of the language and how it's visually organized on the page gives us a feel of a movie's speed. Alien does this too, but it's in the slow lane. How fast do you want your story to feel? And how can your sentence structure and style support that? It's an important question to ask. All right, let's go to the last example for tone. Kane, Jesus, Dallas, voiceover, what? Viscera and mandible now visible. The interior surface spongy and irregular. Kane shines the light inside. With shocking violence, a small creature smashes outward, fixes itself to his mask, sizzling sound. 
The creature melts through the mask, attaches itself to Cain's face. Cain tears at the thing with his hands, his mouth forced open. He falls backward. So we talked about pace. Let's talk about how a style can have an effect on the atmosphere of the movie you're trying to write. How you organize sentences on the page, the length of those sentences. These choices can be the secret sauce for filling out the flavor of your world. Now, we're screenwriters and not postmodern novelists, so we can't go nuts when it comes to style. But I encourage you to explore imaginative ways that style and structure can support these less tangible elements. Like tone. Like pace. Like atmosphere. What's the nature of the world we're about to inhabit? How can my style, in addition to my words, support that? Alien is a bleak, nihilistic nightmare. And these clipped, specific, disturbing images underscore that. And this idea can be brought to any screenplay, and really, any story. Mind your style. Mind your tone. Teach us the pace of the tale you're telling. Develop its atmosphere. And use structure to help us inhabit your special world. Thanks for listening to this first installment of Script Bits. I'd like to thank Graham Webster for composing our music. For updates and the latest episodes, please follow us on Twitter at ScriptBitsShow or find our website, ScriptBitsPodcast.com. And you can always reach out to me personally at Bruff at ScriptBitsPodcast.com. That's B-R-O-U-G-H at ScriptBitsPodcast.com. Thank you for listening. My name is Bruff Hansen, and this is ScriptBits.